Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And associate editor Drew Taylor. Hello. I'm so happy to be on the podcast as a member of the Collider team for the first time. This yes. Is, this is huge. And you're fired. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a great show. <laughs> Come back next time and see who else we let go. No. Um, this week on the podcast, we're talking about Silence of the Lambs. We asked y'all to vote for what film we should discuss. And because y'all chose Silence of the Lambs, that was a great opportunity for us to bring on Drew, who recently ranked all of director Jonathan Demme's films. So in addition to talking about Silence of the Lambs, we also wanted to talk to Drew about Demme's filmography and what kind of director he was. And Because I, I don't think he gets enough credit. Um, I think partially because, and we'll get into this later, I think his sort of giant films, the films that really made waves, were in a pre-internet era. And then he started making smaller films that no one really noticed, um, even though he was still making like good films and good documentaries. So we're going to get into all of that. But before we talk about Demi uh, specifically, we wanted to talk more about Silence of the Lambs. the film has been out for, what, it came out in 1990, 91? 91, yeah. Yeah, so there will be some spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> I, if you're like, don't tell me what happens in Signs of the Lambs, you may want to stop watching. Uh, but, so on my, this most recent rewatch, the thing that really jumped out at me was something that really always kind of grabs me, but I, I don't really remember it until I'm watching it again. It's just how good the framing and POV is in this film. It is it is such a subtle camera technique, um, but it is such a great use of stylization. And so if you haven't seen it or you're about to rewatch it, just always keep an idea in your mind about eye lines. Like who's looking directly down the barrel of the camera and then where is Clarice's eye line? And like, is it she talking down the barrel of the camera or is it slightly off center? And it's just, it's, I could, you could write an entire paper just on that. And it's right. that kind of attention to detail that I think makes Silence of the Lambs like one of the best thrillers ever made because it puts you in the headspace of these people in a, in a really unique and thoughtful way. Yeah, I wonder what it was like for an actor to work on one of these movies and to look into the camera. Because I mean, I'm sure it's something that they tell you to never do ever and to do it so consistently. Um, I just wonder what that was like for them. But I remember when I was doing my my rewatch, I wrote down the first time I think I saw it, which was in a movie called Last Embrace, which um, was this, his kind of like Hitchcockian thriller from 79, I think. So he's really been using it a lot, but the, the way he uses it in Silence of the Lambs, I think is so cool. And obviously... My whole write-up in the piece was about how it pays off in that final confrontation and how all of that is setting you up for this, again, spoiler alert, uh, when Clarice is in the dark and can't see anything. So she's been looking at you this whole movie, and then in the final act, it's it's off balance because she can't see anything. And I think that that was really cool. Well, it's also thematically rich because the whole film is about observation and being observed. It's all about... 
who is looking at who and who understands who and the transformational act of observation. I mean, the whole film, I mean, you see people like you see the way like the male cadets look at Clarice and sort of the kind of patronizing looks that they give her, not seeing her as an equal. You see how it's really only with Lecter that there is that connection, even though he is observing her in a way that is unnerving and, and disturbing, but he also gets to the truth of who she is. Right. And then even with um, Buffalo Bill, you know, he has his own, like he, the way he is observed is through his own camera when he records himself. It's, it's really like, it's a consistent thing that happens throughout the film. It's not just a gimmick. It, it speaks to what the movie is about. Yeah. Uh, I think that I wish that we had a time. We all had time because apparently there's a this new Netflix documentary called Disclosure uh, about sort of like uh, you know the trans experience and trans representation in media. And apparently there's a big section about Silence of the Lambs and about how kind of destructive that portrayal was. Yeah. Um, I so I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to, we we should all watch it and maybe like chat about it again. But um, that's sort of an interesting dimension that it's recently had is this documentary that's just come out. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen that documentary yet, but the the trans thing was in my mind going into it, knowing about Buffalo Bill. But I had forgotten the film specifically, like Lecter specifically states he is not transsexual, but he thinks that he is. Right. And so it's like it's kind of setting Buffalo Bill apart. Like so, there is like dialogue saying, "Don't." We're not trying to say that this is a trans person, but it's still it kind of gets lost in there because Buffalo Bill is such an outrageous figure. Yeah. And especially for 1991, when it's not like, you know, the idea of like like transsexualism, like wasn't really something that was in the average moviegoers mindset. They weren't really considering it. Right. But doesn't also Clarice say something like he's a transsexual. So he's, they're usually more gentle or something yes. like that. You Transsexuals know. are passive and they're right. Yeah. Yeah. So some of that stuff I'm sure is a little, uh, mm-hmm. dicey these days. Well, and it came on the, I mean, around that time also you had, I think it, it's it, what hinders the film is the, the idea of the uh, members of the LGBTQ community as an other or a pervert or a psycho or a serial killer like that trope had been around for a long time and it was rare that you saw in cinema one for like a member of that community portrayed as like a just uh you know a regular human being character um that was more uh you know outside the norm but of course demi then made one of the defining films of the 90s in philadelphia Um, yeah which isn't necessarily specifically about the LGBTQ experience, but about the AIDS epidemic and has Tom Hanks playing uh, a gay man. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a great movie. I don't know when the last time you guys watched that, but I was really rewatching it. It was pretty, it was pretty uh, moving. And uh, I mean, what's so fascinating about that one too, is that it was like you had AIDS and then you were dead. Like there was no living with the disease. There was no, you know, medicine that that helped with it it was just like it was a death sentence and it make and it gives the whole movie this incredible sort of like tragic pallor um that uh is just really unique and and again you know like adam was saying you know not a lot of things were written or or dramatized about the disease back then um so it's it's pretty it's pretty great um but yeah he he tackled a lot of interesting subjects i mean you know, when we when we we were pre gaming, Matt was talking about how sort of hard to pin down he was as a filmmaker, um, but not a journeyman because he did have these stylistic 
touchdowns that he kept returning to um, and thematic uh, ideas that he kept exploring. So um, I think that's really interesting. Well, and something I find really compelling about Silence of the Lambs is that it's a horror film. It's a thriller. It is unnerving. And you remember it as being this really scary, creepy movie, but it's not graphic necessarily it's not gory necessarily it's all in his shot design it's how he's framing things so you think about i mean not only just the direct address of the camera but how every shot is is part of telling that story so something that really struck out to me um is when clarice gets in the elevator with all the men in the fbi and they're all taller than her and looking down on her and so that immediately puts you in the mindset of clarice and you understand Everything that happens afterwards, you understand her place in the FBI. You understand how they view her and how she feels as a woman and as a female agent um, and as someone of smaller stature so that when she does go meet Hannibal, you get this sense of like her being kind of like thrown to the wolves, which is something they mentioned in the film. But like that's storytelling. It's how he's it's how he's using the camera to tell the story. And so then that evocative imagery of her going to meet Hannibal and him kind of obscure behind the bars and kind of coming out of the shadows. I think all of that is just like, I don't know. I just find that really interesting that like the, the scariness of this movie is not necessarily jump scares or like shocking you with like, Oh man, look at these terrible things. I mean, obviously there's the jar, the head in the jar, um, which is a pretty big jump scare in the movie and pretty great. But I don't know, something that makes Demi so special, I think is his attention to detail in designing his shots. And that's something that, if we want to talk about uh, this as a franchise that the following films did not have. Um, well, no, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think when people look at Silence of the Lambs, what they misunderstand is they think it's about Lecter and Lecter's only in the film for like 24 minutes of a two hour film. He's not in it for like more than a quarter of it. And yet he's an important part. And I think he, his relationship with Clarice is essential, but I think the Hannibal character, you have to look at him as working within the totality. You have to look at it holistically and what he brings to the whole narrative. And Silence of the Lambs, like, yeah, he's a scene stealer, but he is not, the film doesn't begin and end with him. And so when you're watching Silence of the Lambs, like the whole film works. I had rewatched him, like, yeah, this film is scary and thrilling, but it's also super entertaining. Like, it's just, it moves really fast. It's really fun to watch. But it's not just the Hannibal show. And I think getting too, I think other films got way too wrapped up in the Hannibal of it all and kind of forgot that, you know, it's, it really is a film about observation. It's, it's a film that's about something. It, it has ideas and that it wants to pursue and it's telling the story of Clarice Starling. It's really more of her story. And yet there is this very, you know, electric connection with Hannibal, but it's not the end of the story. Um, yeah, and I would think the, that yeah. the, the, like, the scariest moment is that edit where you realize that Scott Glenn and the FBI guys are at the wrong house and that she is alone at Buffalo Bill's house. I mean, I remember I was like, I don't know, 15 or something, and I was babysitting for these neighbors and they had that tape. And I just remember watching the movie in the dark and that moment happening and just wanting to be anywhere else but in a house alone <laughs> with this videotape. I mean, it, it really is an amazing moment, and it still packs that punch. And I can just imagine how, you know, audiences would react to that if they're, you know, screaming and jumping up and down when you realize that Michael Keaton is uh, the girl's father in Spider-Man. You know, that kind of 
that which I think is probably a moment that is partially borrowed from this, but you know, just that surprise is just so wonderful and so so scary. Just the dread of knowing that she's in that house by herself. Yeah, I, I also I kind of want to take a moment just to single out the production design of this film. Like right. Buffalo Bill's like House of Horrors is really like every room there's something else disturbing. Like ah, here's my skin suit room, and ah, here's my room full of bugs and you know like just it's constant it's like and every get, every you really want has, to get out of there yeah yeah it has a what? pit Who, whose house has a pit every doorway has like polaroids of him with strippers and stuff i mean it's really amazing it's the the detail and i think that that is like demi rewatching all 16 or whatever demi movies in the past couple of weeks his attention to detail is insane and it all comes from this character level what is the character who is the character where are they living and it's it's really fascinating to see that from somebody's you know filmography because i think so much of today's movies especially are just sort of what's the flashiest coolest you know whiz bang you know stuff and and that's i i think again what the the kind of franchise devolved into was how many ways can Hannibal kill somebody or can we see him as a young adult or whatever and so you know it's just really it's a really fascinating approach I think well I mean this movie was an immense blockbuster success and then a surprising Oscar success it came out early in the year which movies that came out early in the year didn't necessarily weren't Oscar contenders but it stayed the course and is one of let me look it up i think it's one of only three films, only three films to, to win picture director actor actress and screenplay um along with it happened one night from 1934 and one flew over the cuckoo's nest from 1975 um was obviously just this immense hit and like everyone wanted more and then thomas harris wrote hannibal and demi and jodie foster were like this is too violent like they we're not coming back for this we're not going to do it Ridley Scott steps in to direct. Julianne Moore steps into the role of Clarice Starling. And that movie is just devoid of any subtlety. Um, Ridley Scott, I mean, arguably, I think he's still one of the the best filmmakers we've ever had, but he's much more hit, hit or miss. And I think he, I think what sets Demi apart is the humanity that he yeah. zeroes in on, on, on the characters in his film. And Hannibal is just devoid of, of humanity. It becomes the Hannibal show. And then Brett Ratner's Red Dragon is just a really kind of basic thriller, like just well, very. And it's big. also, I mean, we we we'd probably be remiss if we didn't mention that Hannibal was done before with Michael Mann's Manhunter. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, to, and that film is is quite good, and I think Brian Cox deserves some attention for his. He did a good job playing Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. That I, movie's good. It's very different. It's a very yes. different kind of film. Um, well, the Brett Ratner one is like you, you, he doesn't understand how suspense works. At he doesn't all. understand how a lot of things work. <laughs> no, no, but you just watch that movie and it's just like, it's like you know, a, a non-native English speaker trying to recite something or something. It's just like there's no, the translation of it doesn't work at all, and it's just so dead. And and I mean, again, they brought back uh, Kristen Z, the production designer. They recreated Hannibal Cell. They did all the stuff that they tried to do. There's that like jokey ending where he's where uh, Chilton says there's a female FBI agent coming to visit you or whatever. And you're like, oh, geez. But uh, <laughs> did either of you see Hannibal Rising? No. I did. I saw it in theaters. It was garbage. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Who did that one? 
the guy that did the girl with the pearl earring. Uh-huh. You know, that master of suspense. I don't know yeah. what the guy's name is, yeah. It bas- basically, the, some foreign director gets chewed up and spit out by Hollywood. It's that story. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there would there could have been an interesting movie made from the Hannibal novel, but I don't think uh, it was Ridley Scott. To me, it was like a David Cronenberg like body horror thing more than anything else. And they didn't... All the the, the color from the novel, you know, the... the um, uh, who played the old, who played the disfigured guy was it Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman, yeah. yeah. You know his whole story about how his his sister was a bodybuilder who wanted to have his child and all this stuff, and people are getting killed by with eels are getting stuffed down people's throats and all this stuff, and it, it was like there was none of that texture to the movie. It was just kind of a slick Hannibal in Rome or wherever he was cutting people's throats. It wasn't, it, you know, there was nothing vibrant about yeah, the well there's not the, the film isn't about anything it's That's just true. like it's it's just like hey here's this hannibal character and it's anthony hopkins and he's back and he's playing this character that you know you that people enjoy so that's the movie right and it's just it's not it's not enough um and i think to to the credit of um brian fuller the hannibal tv series is about something i don't think it always works Right. Um, but I think it at least understands like we have Will Graham and we have Hannibal and that relationship is going to be the core of our show, but we're also going to make it gory as hell. (laughs) It's elevated horror, which I think is the way to go with it. If you're not going to do the like really grounded humanity of silence of the lambs, Mm -hmm. if you're going to lean into the, the gory aspect of it, um, I think elevating it is the way to go. And, you know, Hannibal, a.k.a. Murder Husbands, is just a wild ride. I cannot believe that third season aired on network television because it was just really esoteric and poetic and just like Hannibal and Will just talking about theory and things. Yeah, and he, really, he really made it commercial. They said, you got one last shot to get an audience. And he said, all right, I'm going to really open it up. <laughs> let all the let all the fans in. No, the complete opposite of that. Shut the door. And you can see in the first season of the, there's that push and pull between like, is it a procedural? Right. Is it, you know, is it going to be really serialized? How much is the will and Hannibal of it all going to come together? Um, And I think by the middle of that season, he's like, fuck it. It's a will and Hannibal show. It's not a case of the week show. Well, because also the case of the week show was so brutal. They had to like not air an episode. It's like, here's an episode where children murder their parents and Molly Shannon's in it. (laughs) I did like in season three, though, when he knew the end was coming, he was like, fuck, we don't have a lot of time. All right. So let's let's cut the Europe stuff short after like four or five episodes and just do fucking Red Dragon. Just like bring him in. Let's just do full Red Dragon. And they do it. And it's fun. I forgot that they they incorporated elements of Hannibal. Were the pigs in it, though? Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah, there was the pigs and like Michael Pitt plays Verger and oh yeah, um, you know, eating his face to him with the dogs. Yeah. Wasn't there two face. actors that played Verger? Yeah, Michael yes. Pitt didn't come back for season. Michael three. Pitt did okay. not come back. Yeah. Okay. Um, although I will say Pitt, like Hannibal was like to me, like Adam was saying, like you have to go elevated with it. Like I can't believe like there's a scene where Michael Pitt makes a child cry and then he drinks the tears. From the child. <laughs> <laughs> That's a thing that happened on NBC. Oh, man. God bless it. God bless it. It's so different from Silence of the Lambs and yet works really well. But uh, yeah, Silence of the Lambs is just lightning in a bottle. 
Yeah. Like, I don't I don't know and I don't know any other filmmaker who would take that script and make that same movie. No, and that's why I get like when I see like CBS is making Clarice, you know, and I'm just like, so you're making a cop show. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not you're not gonna make it, you know, what why this is special. Like it's a it's an amazing performance from Jodie Foster. It gets to sort of the internal life of this character, what it's like to be, it, it, the film is very thoughtful about what it is to be a woman in a male dominated world. Um, and and, and, I, I, and I'm surprised at that because I, that, that a male director was able to sort of really hit on that. Like one of the few shots where two characters, there, there are only really two characters when they like looking down the barrel and like Clarice then responds by also looking down the barrel of the camera. One is Hannibal Lecter. The other is Cassie Lemons, who plays her friend at the FBI. Like, that is, it, it's very much about, like, this is, like, a safe space for these two female agents who are kind of marginalized in the agency. So the film is always thinking about these gender relationships. Right. And Cassie went on to become a great director in her, yeah, in her own right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, rewatching all of his movies, too, this was, this is the, like, commercial outlier, obviously, in his filmography. I think this was probably his biggest hit, certainly his most sort of uh, critically embraced. But uh, how much of a Demi movie this is, like, it doesn't feel out of place with his other movies at all. Even going back from, you know, he, he worked with Roger Corman, who has a, who has a cameo in this movie, Um he uses a lot of the same actors, um, the the kind of weird bug guys in like almost every Demi movie. Um, so it felt very much a piece of his filmography, even though commercially and, and to the world at large, it's this outlier because it's, it might be the only Demi movie that people really readily know, um, which is just such a shame. But uh, yeah, like, I mean, I'm sure they, they, they definitely know this. They probably know Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, but from there it starts getting like, it kind of starts getting a little fuzzy, you know, yeah. and, and, and to be fair, like it's sort of, I want to say like movie culture cause movie culture kind of changes, but he was not the films he was making, like in the eighties, like he wasn't making like big, you know, blockbuster films that like we now associate with 80 directors, even like someone like Joe Dante was like making gremlins and stuff, right. but like, you know, Demi was making like Melvin and Howard and like, yeah something wild is his as well. Yes, right? Yeah. 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 So like he's making more films that are kind of more on the indie spectrum, but also before Sundance really takes off. So he's, he's sort of an yeah. outlier wherever he is. Um, like there's the zeitgeist and it's not that he's making bad films. He's just not making films that are within sort of the realm of what people are noticing. Yes. I think that's, that's a great point. And even, you know, Melvin and Howard won, I think, two or three Oscars. It won Best Screenplay. Mary Steenburgen won Best Supporting Actress. It's an amazing movie, and yet it is so hard to find now. It's, yeah. it's really I was going to really watch weird. it before this podcast, and, like, I can't find it. <laughs> no, it was, it was, I think there was a Twilight Time Blu-ray, which that label just went under, and all, all the movies are, are out of print. And, you know, it's not available digitally. And it's just, I mean, it was the National Board of Review's number one movie of the year. And it's like, you cannot find it. He, he also has this outsider status because his movies are so hard to find. I mean, they aren't sort of canonized like some of the other filmmakers of the period. 
Um, even though I think if he was making these movies in the seventies, then everyone would know his name and, and, you know, there would be a box set and, and all exactly this like he's a little too late for the seventies, his blockbuster stuff. He's not making blockbuster stuff in the eighties. Yeah. Then in the nineties, like he sort of hits that sweet kind of like, Oh, you're a prestige filmmaker, even though silence of the lambs is not intended as a prestige film. Like Adam right. was saying came out early in the year. It's a thriller and it ends up sort of surprisingly sweeping the Oscars. And then Philadelphia is like, okay, this is a prestige film, important subject matter. Like this is sort of where you are. And then he kind of just leaves that. And then he yeah. just kind of, not to say like he makes trash, but like he just kind of goes off and does something else. Like he just kind of, yeah. and so, and then you get to films like, like he does a remake of the Manchurian Candidate, which is yeah. a weird choice. And After a remake of Charade. After a remake yeah. of Charade, which, and yeah, yeah that, that remake of Charade is bad. Like, and I, I love Charade, but yeah. the truth about Charlie is bad. Yeah. And I, I mean, I talk about this in the piece, but I think the biggest problem with it is that he he was trying for this sort of European feeling. And to me, Demi is like the quintessential, one of the quintessential sort of American directors. He's yeah. obsessed with Americana. Even from the Corman movies, he was exploring that. Things like Crazy Mama, where it's like, all about what the 50s is and trying to go back to the past and this kind of crime spree and that's a really fun movie if you guys haven't seen it it's on it's on Amazon Prime now but yeah him trying to do this like European thing and you know I, I was shocked to watch it and there's like this Agnes Varda uh, cameo and there's this whole runner with about who uh, don't shoot the piano player and you know, I mean, it, it, it's really interesting, but it, yeah, it doesn't work. And, and you know, his big movie of the 90s was supposed to be Beloved, which was just, you know, a commercial and, I mean, more of a commercial disaster than anything else. But, you know, it caused Oprah Winfrey to have a mental breakdown. And, you know, it's like all these things because it didn't hit like it was supposed to. And it's a fascinating movie, again, very hard to find. I think you can buy it on VOD, but that's it. Um and, you know, it continues in his tradition and it's it's got some exemplary filmmaking, but just didn't hit for whatever reason. I think because he went a little harder than something like The Color Purple, which people more, you know, roundly embraced. But but that's another movie that's that has a lot of horror tropes, but is not a not a horror movie. I haven't seen Beloved. Oh, you should. Do you have it's... movies anywhere? I'll, I'll I'll send it to you as a free <laughs> thing. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's one of those like voodoo whatever like yeah, sure yeah. it's yeah. in a locker somewhere yeah i'm trying to send it <laughs> you to have it. a screen pass to watch yes. it for 72 hours oh my god matt knows everything yeah. <laughs> what i find really interesting is that you know silence of the lambs obviously is this huge hit he and jody foster both pass on hannibal um but what he chooses to put his chips on at that time in the early 90s is philadelphia which i mean that that movie was a really big deal for Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington at the time. I mean, I don't think people understand now. And Denzel Washington struggled with it. It was a big deal for him to be in a quote unquote gay movie. Like it was a movie about, um, you know, Tom Hanks was lauded as, you know, brave for playing this LGBTQ character. Denzel Washington, you know, I don't know how public he's been about it, but I feel like I remember him him talking about having some struggles with his faith. And at the time, it was a marginalized community. And Demi's like, I'm going to humanize this this community. I'm going to humanize this AIDS epidemic that the government is ignoring and that we're trying to um, people are trying to, you know, sweep under a rug or pretend it's not a big deal. Um, 
and it was a big deal. I mean, it won. Tom Hanks won the Oscar for it, uh, and gave one of the most moving Oscar speeches I I can remember um, when he accepted that. But I don't know. I think that was a really big deal. That Demi was like, "This is what I'm going to do with this fame and success that I've finally gotten." Yeah, didn't get nominated for Best Picture though, which I thought was sort of odd. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. the Academy. <laughs> But I also thought what was interesting was that he had um, he had Antonio Banderas playing Hanks's lover, mm. which I think uh, Banderas. I, I don't know if any straight actor has played more gay characters than Banderas between fifteen years of working with Almodovar. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, interview with a vampire. Like you know, he's he's. I think he's probably very comfortable in that that you know culture and that I think he brought a level of sort of sophistication and, and comfort to the movie. And um, yeah, I don't know what I was, where I was going with this, but I think that Banderas, you know, made it more comfortable. Yeah. He, I think he did a pretty good job casting it again to go get to the humanity of it. Yeah. To, to when do- that director dress is so powerful because at that point in time, so much of America had not met a gay person, even though they had, but they you know, there was still this issue with uh, being closeted in this marginalized community. But when you went and saw that movie, people were talking to you. Yeah, you were talking to this person. You were humanizing with this person. Well, and, and it made it so so valuable because he was making it specifically about a gay man. He wasn't making it like AIDS, and it's like I'm a straight person who has it. Like he wasn't just trying to separate AIDS, but saying like, no, no, this is the community that AIDS is really ravaging right yeah. now. And this is what we need to make it about. And I think that really gave the film its added power. So it's not just a film about the AIDS epidemic. It really is about, you know, gay, you know, gay men in the, in the early, in the eighties, nineties. And, uh, and it's about being know, fucked over at a job, which I think is something that everyone has experienced. <laughs> and if they, you haven't, then you're, you know, very more power to you, but, you know, also containing it in that sort of legal thriller aspect and also casting so many people from his, past filmography that are that are you know so lovable like mary steenbridge and, and jason robards both from melvin and howard who are these kind of horrible you know lawyers that are facing off against tanks it's just it's a fascinating kind of inversion of things that he had been playing with for so long it's a it's a wonderful movie if, if, if you haven't watched it in a while it's really something and it's very it's very gay in the sense that it it, it captures a lot of theatricality there's that great monologue that that hanks gives um, where he's what is he reciting an opera or something? Do you remember Adam? So yeah, I think so. Where he he like changes the lighting and everything mm-hmm. goes red. I mean, it's just it's a it's such a wonderful movie. It's just yeah. such an essential film. I also kind of want to just take a moment to say like you know we're talking about you know Demi's features. He was also a prolific documentary documentary filmmaker as well, yes. and made yeah. a lot of documentaries. Some of which have like never like really seen the light of day. Yeah, like I was going through his filmography and like. In 20, like, for instance, like in 2011, like he did this film called I'm Carolyn Parker, which I remember seeing at the Toronto International Film Festival. It's about this woman who um, she lost her home in Katrina and it's about her struggle to like get her home back, basically, like, you know, to get refund, not refunded, but like to get the funding that she needs to rebuild her home. And it's like this ongoing struggle. And it's a really powerful, like post Katrina documentary. And I don't think it's really available anywhere. No. And it's kind of it kind of blows my mind. Like again, Drew, what you're saying, like there are all these demi movies, and no one really has them. Like yeah. they're just kind of scattered to the winds. Like you know, there you you can find like I don't know, is Jimmy Carter Man from Planes anywhere? Like it's it's that's one of them that is I think just because New Line put it out. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's so many. 
I mean, he made three Neil Young movies. And he made a movie about his cousin, I think, who was like a priest. And it got into the director's fortnight at Cannes. And yet you cannot see it anywhere. And that's part of the reason why I didn't include those on my ranking, because I could, I just couldn't find them. I mean, it was hard enough to get these movies as they were, but, and, uh, you know, obviously his last movie, sadly, ended up being a documentary, which was that terrific um, Justin Timberlake concert movie for Netflix, which is just so beautiful. It's shot in black and white. It's kind of a, you know, return to form, because uh, obviously he made Stop Making Sense, which is, I think, still maybe the greatest concert movie ever. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, that was such a huge part of his life and and I think speaks to his commitment to this like, you know, ongoing study of humanity and this kind of anthropomorphic, you know, look at, at, at culture and people. And I mean, it's just he's, he's such an, a fascinating character. And um, I'm so sad that he's gone. You know, he died way too soon. He died. He, yeah, he died too young. I mean, and I mean, gosh, his brother Ted died. Yeah. as well and ted made good movies too yeah um but you know i mean the thing is that in this discussion just realizing like it you know we're kind of, i don't want to say we're at risk of forgetting jonathan demi but i feel like he's not getting the credit that he's due for all that he did yeah. for making so many good films and like his biggest sin is he didn't hit at the right time like he wasn't right. He wasn't the kind of filmmaker he was supposed to be at certain times in history. Yeah. And therefore, he is now like, and now just distribution being what it is, it's now super hard to like give him the tribute he deserves. Yes. Even something like Married to the Mob, I feel like came out maybe like two years too late. I think that was mm-hmm. 88. Yeah. Now it's like a cult hit, but like, yeah. again, like it's hard. Everything is hard to track down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think say- that's, yeah. Well, I, I will say a Demi movie you can watch right now is that Justin Timberlake documentary, which is yeah. on Netflix. It was made for Netflix. Uh, and I saw that movie at TIFF alone in an IMAX theater and was just like overcome with emotion watching it. And if you want to get a sense of like uh, Jonathan Demi's humanity, the way he captures it's a concert film. So it's a Justin Timberlake concert. But the way he captures the performers around Justin Timberlake and the way he captures Justin Timberlake is just really humanistic and evocative and compelling. And you just kind of feel overcome with emotion. If you ever have like, like friends over on a Saturday night, not right now, obviously. um, But like, you just want to kick back and like kind of something to like put on and all enjoy together. I highly recommend watching that on Netflix. It's just super joyful and oddly emotional. Yeah. He's amazing. Uh, And I think that if, if his, you know, sometimes his his interest in the in the characters maybe got in the way of the commercial aspects of the movie. <clears throat> you look at, did you guys like the Manchurian Candidate remake or not? I need to revisit. See, I'm such a like I'm such a fan of the original that it yeah. sets a very high bar. And so I saw it in 2004 when it came out, and I have and like because I was kind of like meh on it, I didn't really feel like the need to revisit it. And now I'm kind of like I should give it another shot. Yeah, you should. It, it's really interesting and and. Sometimes I feel like his, yeah, his interest in the characters and also collapsing two of the characters from the original into the Denzel character, which he he did, um, was maybe not the best thing. But but he always just has so many great little moments. And I think every every one of his movies is worth watching, even The Trouble with Charlie or Swing Shift. The truth about Charlie. The truth about Charlie. Sorry. Or Swing Shift, which is something a movie that he he got taken away from him. which is this incredible story that you can find online about how they, they Goldie Hawn thought that Christine Lottie was taking too much attention away from her. And, you know, 
this whole thing, but but it's still very much worth watching. And and he, you know, if you can find the movies, please watch them. I think something wild is on HBO Max right now as part of the Criterion yes. Collection, right? Um, and obviously there there are here there are movies here and there, but um, yeah, it, it, I, I can't say what a great project this was to do because rewatching all of the movies gave me such great perspective, and and it was just really really fun to do. So. Everyone should do it. That's what I'm trying to say. I also haven't seen Manchurian Candidate since it came out, but I always conflate it with that movie, The Siege, with Bruce Willis. Oh yes, no, I don't know is... why. Because they both I have don't... Denzel. Yeah, probably. But they Jeffrey just seem like they both one, had similar feels. Yeah, but yeah. I don't. I don't. I do remember it being a bit of a big deal though, with Meryl Streep and Denzel and yeah. Jonathan Demme directing. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out again. It feels very prescient uh, now, especially. Tell us about Ricky and the Flash, Drew. I love it. It's great. It's absolutely great. It's a joy. I cannot believe people get behind movies like Mamma Mia and they don't get behind Ricky and the Flash. There's great music. Meryl Streep is terrific. It's really fun. I like it a lot more than Rachel Getting Married. That's my controversial take from my Ooh, Demi rewatch. That's yeah. a hot, that's a, that's a spicy take. Yeah. They both have weddings. They both have weddings. This is not... <laughs> But I mean, I I mean, the fact that it was Demi, Diablo Cody, and Meryl Streep is just a delicious sandwich. Uh, you know, it's it's really fun and special. And I, not enough people saw it. But again, it's like just a very sweet little movie about characters and kind of a sticky situation. And and that's it. And and also Rick Springfield, who was actually one of the highlights of that awful True Detective season two, I think, uh, is really good. Uh, oh yeah, and, he was in that. <laughs> yeah. Remember he was a pornographer or something? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I say check out Ricky and the Flash. That is probably readily available. Yes, that should be easier to find. Yes, yeah. Um, you won't find Last Embrace, but you will find Ricky and the Flash. So so find it. Um, all right. Well, with that, let's uh, let's move on to Recently Watched. Uh, Drew, what have you seen lately? Well, I'm, I'm again, embarking on a, another massive retrospective for Collider.com and these two fine gentlemen before me. Uh, and I'm rewatching all of the Miyazaki movies. So I started that this weekend and watched Castle in the Sky again, which is just a beautiful masterpiece. And, and a movie that has influenced... So, you can see so many other movies in this movie. It's, it's fascinating. And I don't know, have you either of you seen that? Okay, yeah. So you know, it's... It, there's a lot of sort of aerial stuff that is taken, like Up, I think, is has taken a lot of things from it. Uh, John Carter, you know, and um, it's just a wonderful film. And, and that is also available on HBO Now. I watched my old Disney Blu-ray, but that is part of the Studio Ghibli collection on HBO Now and, and is also readily available. So don't skip that stuff. It's, it's an amazing resource that so many of those movies, not all of the Studio Ghibli movies, but most of them are on HBO Now. So, or go, HBO Max. Oh my God, I'm not, I don't even have the right. I was about to say, what are you talking about? HBO Now is so like 2012. HBO Now. 2000 and late. Yeah, 2000 late. Yeah. Thank you, Fergie. Yeah, it, HBO Max. These are all on HBO Max, I should say. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah, I need to get around to watching Ponyo now that it's... Oh, it's Ponyo I, is a joy. I, I've never seen Ponyo. That's the only Miyazaki I've never seen. So. Uh, it's it's a blast. This is where I admit that I've only seen two Miyazaki movies. Which ones? The one where they eat all the food. Spirited Away. Yeah, that's it. And I think I've seen the one with the castle that walks. How's Moving Castle? Sure. That's his <laughs> anti-Iraq war movie. 
So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I need to give them another shot, but like well, anime has just never been my thing. It's like it just felt like impenetrable to me. Um, so his stuff is. I'll say this: like even though it is Japanese animation, it's not anime in the sense that I would. Like, as someone who has seen, who saw a fair bit of anime in high school, like, it's not really that. It's not. Are you talking about hentai, Matt? No, I'm talking about, like, <laughs> the thing. I knew, I knew, I, the second I was like, ah, he's going to go for the hentai. He's like, <laughs> he's going to go there. Uh, bitch. <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm talking more about, like, you know, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Like, it's not like that, where it's, like, giant robots and, like, family angst and like that's not trying to slam neon genesis evangelion it's just like my neighbor totoro is not that <laughs> so i think he's like the japanese uh terrence malick is sort of my take that's, on that's him. a bad way of putting it um, and there's a new book out by steve alpert who used to work for disney and then worked for studio ghibli and helped with the translation of all the movies that just came out that i have that i'm very excited to watch because their relationship with Disney was very fraught, and uh, I'm sure you'll see a piece on Collider.com in the next couple of weeks about it. <laughs> nice. But, yeah. Um, all right. Uh, Adam, what have you seen lately? Uh, well, speaking of Disney, I recently, uh, this weekend, uh, we binged Into the Unknown, the making of Frozen 2 documentary series on Disney+, Plus, which is like six episodes. Uh, and Drew had said it was really good, and I was still kind of like, ah, I mean... We'll see. I can't imagine it's anything more than like a commercial for Disney. And it's far more candid than you were expecting it to be. They document a the last year of production on Frozen 2. Um, what I really liked about it is that it got into how integral um, Kristen Bobby Lopez or Kristen Bobby Anderson Lopez are yeah. to like they are essentially co-writers of that film. And like a recurring theme throughout the series is the song Show Yourself, which is just not working. You see them like they're like nine months out from release and they still don't know who the voice is that Elsa's chasing. They're debating over what's happening. There's this big they do their first audience test screening and like it clearly goes terribly because they're like no cameras. You don't ever really get to see like what was on the cards, <laughs> frustratingly, but it is fascinating to see them iterate and you can see it's a frozen two is a movie that I don't love. I think there are uh, some major problems with it, especially with the ending. And you can see why those problems happen. It's interesting to get a look inside that Disney animation process, especially with a movie that big and how it goes along, but also just kind of like the evolution of the project. Like you get to see some of the previous songs set to storyboards. Um, You know, all the actors are in it. So you could see like Jonathan Groff recording like a thousand parts for lost in the woods, uh, which is really fun. Um, it's still like ultimately like, and then it was released and it made more money than any animated movie in the end. And like, doesn't mention that it didn't get nominated for the Oscar, which was a very big deal. <laughs> um, so like, it only goes so far, but it is, it's really interesting. Um, and I would highly, highly recommend checking it out. I am sold. I am going <laughs> see those because I'm the same way. I'm like, Oh yeah, here's, here's something like, Hey, isn't Disney awesome? And I'm like, no, I, yeah. I don't need to watch that. But if, you're going to give me like a, and to me, like that's the kind of documentary that a Disney Disney should be making. They yeah. should be making like, yes, this is we we're Disney. We can absorb the hit of letting you know that not every production runs flawlessly. Yeah, uh, which is kind of what I would like to see with you know something like Rise of Skywalker. Like it didn't run flawlessly. Just be honest with us. Yeah, just tell us what happened. Yeah, yeah, it, it's the most candid uh, behind the scenes thing ever. And I, you know, I talked to some of the the I talked to the director and one of the act the uh, animators, but. 
you know, when we were growing up, we would see these clips of, you know, people pitching boards and they would be like in a dress shirt and, you know, their glasses would be clean. And it's like, wait, this is not, this is so staged and phony. Or you'd see the actor, you know, in a hair and makeup and in the booth recording a line of dialogue that clearly they'd, they'd done like 10 months before. And this, you know, even the, when it comes to the actors, you see uh, Kristen Bell crying as she's sing, singing Do the Next Right Thing. I mean, it's really cool, personal stuff that they've never done before and never had this amount of time to document. And um, yeah, it's very eye-opening how little is actually done by the time they're, they start the documentary a year out. I mean, it's shocking. They released like the teaser trailer online and they're like, that's it. That's all we got, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Like, the whole world is like, ooh, it looks so dark. And they're like, yeah, we don't know. We'll see. Maybe. <laughs> We're working yeah. on it. Very good stuff. And if you watch the documentary and like it, I did 15 articles on Collider.com right now. You can, you can read all about it. <laughs> yes. Um, for me, I, I watched this weekend uh, Ivan Passar's um, 1981 film, Cutter's Way which people, I've, people I trust, they were saying, oh, this is a great film. It's going to be on, it's on Prime Video, but it's leaving at the end of the month. So I didn't really know what to expect. I'm like, okay, so it's about, uh, it stars John Hurd and Jeff Bridges. Uh, John Hurd is a Vietnam War vet, and Jeff Bridges is kind of his aimless best friend, Richard Bone. Uh, Richard is driving home, and he witnesses something kind of fishy. Uh, and it turns out that there's a woman who's been placed in a, in a dumpster. Uh, and so he is a witness to a crime and Cutter, played by John Hurd, um, gets really obsessed with, you know, can we, you know, solve this? You know, what, you know, let's get to the bottom of this. And what's really fascinating about it, um, aside, I mean, it's really bleak and dark because it's not really about solving the mystery. It's really about like these people who, are in this toxic relationship, like between Cutter and Richard, and also Cutter's wife, Mo. Um, they are like in this sort of very destructive, codependent relationship, kind of living, I don't want to say on the fringes of society, but like they're definitely something has gone amiss. And yet they all they have is each other. And it's really about that. It's really more of a relationship drama. And then tangentially, there's also this crime that happened. Um, that involves this wealthy um, person that's probably going to get away with it. And the two things that jumped out at me, aside from like how kind of bleak and dark it is, was, oh, this was probably an inspiration for The Big Lebowski. <laughs> because essentially what you have is Jeff Bridges plays a guy who kind of is tangentially involved, like related to a crime. And then uh, he starts, and then with the prompting of his Vietnam what, you know, vet friend, who then sees an opportunity for extortion, of a rich guy, they go kind of go along. But whereas the Coen brothers saw it as fodder for comedy, in Cutter's way, it's it's much darker. But I think it makes for a film that's strong on its own merits uh, and kind of a very good, like, post-Vietnam War America story. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, and uh, Heard and, and Bridges are terrific. Um, it's funny, I've also watched Bridges in a film that came out in 1972 called Fat City. And it's just crazy, like, Jeff Bridges has just, like, worked with everyone and been in everything and is just, like, one of the greatest actors ever. Like, it's, his career is just amazing. Like, he, he, he did one of those GQ videos of, like, talking about his career and it, like, scratched the surface. Yeah. It, and so, um, but Cutter's Way, if you can, if you can find it, I, I recommend checking that one out. Yeah, I love those post-Vietnam kind of like either nori kind of like 
Southern Comfort movies like that, where or Rolling Thunder, where it's all about the oh, kind of like Rolling Thunder, the psychic trauma of Vietnam that you take back with you, and then it kind of just infests everything. The relationship between William Devane and Tommy Lee Jones's character in Rolling Thunder so is so great. Huh. Yes. Oh. Ha, yeah, look at look at get yourself a man who looks at you like Tommy Lee Jones looks <laughs> at William Devane. Um, yeah, I mean those kind of movies are just so great and so they were such a huge part of like American cinema back then in the in the seventies and eighties and and even you think about you know Lethal Weapon the two guys had like a camaraderie because they were both in Vietnam. I mean it's it's just crazy how that it's, kind of permeated everything. Yeah, no, I mean it it is like it's wild like how Vietnam was such you know had such a massive impact on the culture and now like. I think of like, what was the latest Vietnam War film? And it was like, if you skip past The Five Bloods, which actually does deal with it realistically, it's Kong Skull Island. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to see how the country now thinks about Vietnam. So uh, with that, um, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Drew, can, where can people find you on Twitter? Oh, I am a Drew Tailored, like a tailored suit. And I share every article that I write on Collider.com and, and also fun things and occasionally give Adam shit. So if you want all that great content, please follow me there. Yes. All right. And Ad- <laughs> Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. It's that little chico pit boom, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken and you know, that's fire. Now, Bobo, you know that you could get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on negative to positive, we always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how our life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from negative to positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.